books, 30 years. One man, no credentials. This is 30 by 30 on Burt's Books. Hello everyone, Brett Bateman Lindsley here from BurtReadsBooks.com with another episode of the 30 by 30 book review podcast, where I don't just review books, I interact with them. I open a window into my life so that you can see how someone else approaches books and learning and the why and how behind the lessons and meanings we take away from books. Remember, you can take the podcast on the go by finding recent episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and other streaming platforms by searching Burt's Books 30x30. Lastly, please do check out my book wish list in the description of today's episode. I don't make a dime off the show, but I do appreciate your generosity. So if you drop a book in your Amazon cart from that list, they'll give you the opportunity to send it to me at checkout. Though, um, better yet, you could buy a copy from your local bookstore and send it to me that way. So do check out that list, as I think you'll be really pleasantly surprised by the variety you find there. Uh, But shoot, if there's something you want me to read that's not there, feel free to send that to me too. At any rate, today we are going to be talking about virtue, Greek tragedy, the concept of character, and finally, what it means to be a great butler. Now, certainly, it might be a bit presumptuous for me to share my opinions on that last point, but today's book follows the interior thought life of an English butler in the 1950s as he asks himself whether or not he has been a great butler. And as he questions himself on that point, he also asks a set of much more complicated questions that are common to the human condition. For example, How do you evaluate the success of your life in the midst of trying to live your life? When you are in the middle of some crisis trying to do the best that you can, how much are you thinking about your definition of success and the meaning of your life? And what does that degree of thoughtfulness or perhaps unthoughtfulness say about you? Do you have a religious code of ethics that you use to define success? Do you trust biological chemistry to do the work for you? Or perhaps do you take for granted that the ways of life passed down to you by your ancestors have given you a formula for a successful, meaningful life? Now, I think those are pretty interesting questions. And if you agree, I really think you would like today's book. So, today on the 30 by 30 podcast, we'll be looking at Kazuo Ishiguro's modern classic, The Remains of the Day. Remains of the Day was published by Kazuo Ishiguro in 1988 and clocks in at about 250 short pages. Now, Ishiguro claims to have written the book in just 
two weeks. And if that's true, it's really an incredible accomplishment because the book, and I think rightly so, went on to win a Nobel Prize and a Booker Prize in literature. My view is that this book will be one of the ones from our era that will last the test of time, and it currently has a reputation that holds up to that claim. So um, let's jump right into it, but before we do, I do want to make you aware that there are spoilers in the episode. So, the story is about a Mr. Stevens, the aging butler of the once great Lord Darlington, who is a high society man in Great Britain who is involved in foreign affairs. And the book is written in the first person, meaning that this butler, Mr. Stevens, is telling his own story. And I think he is a character so fully realized, so immaculately imagined in the mind of Kazuo Ishiguro that everything about him really rings true. He's a character who is in many ways predictable. He's uptight and professional, a little cold and distant from human relations. He's unable to banter in conversations and there is a real charming awkwardness in his attempts to understand warmth in human conversation. But just like any person, this Mr. Stevens has many surprises in this book and might, um, you know, kind of surprise the reader with a few tender moments as well. So we follow this awkwardly charismatic British butler, Mr. Stevens, in this book, as he finally takes a well-earned and long-delayed vacation, and he's going on vacation through the British countryside, basically taking a driving tour, and he's meeting interesting people and gathering his thoughts about his life thus far. Now, what precipitates the vacation is important. Lord Darlington, his former employer, died about three years ago, and Mr. Stevens has since then been working for an American who bought the estate. But Mr. Stevens has started to make minor mistakes as a butler, and for us as modern Americans, most of these mistakes would seem very, very minor. Things like a teaspoon not being shined before dinner, right? But for Stevens, who is a butler of the highest regard, these mistakes are an indication to him that something has gone horribly wrong. Now, if you've ever seen a show like Downton Abbey, you'll recall that a butler's job is primarily to manage a household. It's to make sure that, you know, china is put away, the statues are appropriately dusted, that appetizers and cigars are delivered by the help to the house guests at precisely the right time. So, like all managers, the ability to organize and mobilize a staff is pivotally important if you're going to be a successful butler. Now, this book takes place after the Second World War. And Britain, in the first half of the 20th century, is in a time of drastic social changes. And I should actually say that the book is half told in the present and half told in the past. And the, the present time is taking place after World War II. Um, and again, it's a time when uh, 
Britain is going through these big social changes. Great noble households like Lord Darlington's were traditionally believed to have a duty to provide a livelihood for non-noble people living around the estate. And so the nobles would have these immense staffs to care for the estate. As the world wars are taking place, Western countries are democratizing and liberalizing, and the role of the nobility as you know, social caretakers is receding, especially as industrial excuse me, industrial entrepreneurs are coming to have just as much power as the nobles are. So if you're interested in that history, I'd recommend you go listen to episode 23 I did, which was on the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, because this period of time is very interesting to Marx. So I talk about that in that episode. At any rate, when Lord Darlington dies, the house is bought by an American expatriate, a businessman, and you know he doesn't have that sense of noble duty to people of lower social ranks, so he considerably cuts the staff of the estate. And I would just bookmark that here, that that's kind of a political setting. Because that political setting is going to raise some interesting questions about what the author of this book is trying to say. So Mr. Stevens, at the beginning of the book, explains his faltering standards as the result of his not having properly prepared a new staffing plan to address these staffing changes. So part of what he wants to do when he goes on his little vacation is to reconnect with an old staff member who throughout the novel, becomes more and more important. It's a woman named Miss Kenton who left Lord Darlington's house many years ago to be married. So what unfolds is that Stevens goes to a variety of places at the British countryside, and he meets people, and he has experiences that trigger all of these memories from his career. So the book ends up being very episodic in nature as we hear him flash back to all these little moments um, and how, how he's connecting those moments to various things he's learning on his trip. The first memories we read have to do with how Mr. Stevens learned about and learned to become a great butler. In this question, what makes a great butler? Butler really provides the key thrust of the novel. It is a question that just hammers at both the reader and the character of Mr. Stevens throughout the book. Now, any time that someone asks a question like, what is a such and such, what's happening is an exchange about grammatical precision, right? In this case, the question is asking for an ambiguous or vague notion to be, to be defined and made more concrete. It's a little bit like asking, what is justice? Because Mr. Stevens knows that performing certain tasks, of course, uh, makes you a butler in the strictest sense. But what he wants to know more than anything, and what he's struggling with is is understanding these mysterious qualities that he desperately wants to understand and define that would legitimate 
his career and, and make him feel that he had been a great butler. So Mr. Stevens thinks back about his early days learning to be a great butler from his father, who was a butler for Lord Darlington as well. And his father was really just the paramount example of what Mr. Stevens believes makes a great butler. And one of the things Stevens learns from his father is that dignity is the single most important feature of a great butler. But dignity is a little bit like greatness or justice, right? And that it is hard to define. And Stephen says that his father would always tell him a story to make this vague ideal of dignity more tangible. And the story basically goes like this. One night, a great tiger somehow snuck into a nobleman's dining room and hid under the dinner table during a dinner party. So the butler motioned to the noble guests to briefly vacate the premise. Shortly after the guests had left the room, they hear a gunshot. And a few minutes later, the butler leads them back into the room where there's not a drop of blood. There's not a wrinkle on the tablecloth. The butler serves them dinner like nothing happened and everyone lives happily ever after. So Mr. Stevens father tells him that story to teach him about what dignity looks like as a great butler. Now, Stevens ends up having stories of his own that he tells about what dignity looks like in a great butler. And interestingly, these are stories about his father. And the most telling of these stories has to do with his father taking some of Lord Darlington's guests out on a car ride. Now, these guests are in the back of the car, super drunk, and they are just slinging these horrendous, demeaning remarks at Mr. Stevens' father. And his father is able to just keep a stone face the whole time, and throughout this degrading behavior, he's able to politely attend to all of the requests from these guys, who are essentially just jackasses. But what happens is that one of these guys ends up making a demeaning remark about Lord Darlington. So Mr. Stevens' father then pulls the car over to a screeching halt, gets out of the car, and then opens up the back door and demands that this trash-talking nobleman either apologize for what he said about Lord Darlington or get out of the car. And if the guy doesn't make a choice quick, well, Mr. Stevens' father will take care of it. Well, Mr. Stevens' father makes for an imposing figure, and the nobleman apologizes, and Mr. Stevens' father returns to being polite and putting up with their degrading remarks about him instead. These stories are really the central feature of the plot in the first half of the book. We spend a lot of time getting inside what Stevens thinks about this. And what Kazuo Ishiguro does so masterfully here is to pull out a tension that should be really troubling to us. And I think a helpful way to think about this tension is to use the concepts of virtue and character. So I want to start by talking about virtue, which is an ancient Greek idea that has to do with excellence. In ancient ethics, there were various excellences or virtues that a person might master. And 
the list of virtues really kind of differs based on, you know, which society you're looking at from the ancient world. For example, the Greek and Roman Stoics divided virtue into four types. They had wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation. But if you move over to um, the early Christians, you have those um, uh, virtues as well as three more theological virtues called faith, hope, and love. Now, we're talking about a butler today, and, and according to Stevens and their group of butlers, we know that one of their big virtues is dignity, right? Now, notice, with all of these virtues, there is that ambiguity we already talked about with uh, dignity, where it is difficult grammatically to describe what exactly those virtues really are. So here's where I just nerd out about what Ishiguro does. He has Mr. Stevens' father tell a story to explain dignity. And then in turn, he has Mr. Stevens himself do the same thing by telling a story to explain dignity. And the reason this is fascinating is because one of the key arguments in modern-day virtue ethics is that the virtues are narrative-dependent. Narrative-dependent. That is to say, virtues always rely on stories for explanation. And the reason for that is because virtues are traditionally defined as the, the median or the midpoint between a deficiency or an excess of some characteristic. So using courage as an example, it's, it's somewhere between cowardice and recklessness, right? And there's no formula or calculation for knowing exactly the appropriate balance uh, between cowardice and recklessness that produces courage. So if you want to master courage, what you need to do is to watch someone is, who is courageous or to hear stories about someone who is courageous so that you can mimic them and get a, a sense of how virtue is used in a variety of situations. So both Stevens and his father, by telling stories, are showing the narrative dependence they have relied on to learn about the virtue of dignity. Now, I said I was going to bring out attention from the stories that Stevens and his father's t father tells, and I think bringing in the idea of character is also helpful for, the, helpful for this. Because what you've probably noticed is that for something to be narrative-dependent, you see, also means that it is, in a way, community-dependent. Because you are relying on someone else, someone besides yourself, to tell you the stories or to model um, the behaviors that constitute the virtues. So um, the virtues you think worth emulating are usually taught to you by a community. Think about the community of butlers who agree that dignity is important, or the community of Christians who say that faith, hope, and love are important, etc., etc. So the stories the communities tell are pivotally important for teaching virtues, but also for teaching a view of the world. Because embedded in these stories that Stevens and his father tell are some very interesting perspectives of the world. The tiger story specifically, I think, is very clear, and I think it becomes even more clear as the novel progress progresses. 
what it's suggesting is that the dignity of the butler is very much associated with performing the dirty work of nobles in such a way that nobles can maintain a certain public image of gentility, right? The idea of the story is that there is a seedy underbelly to the noble class that no one but the serving class sees. Now, the virtues are all closely interrelated and dependent on each other, and I think that second story that Stevens tells about the, the jerks in the car is illustrative of that because you can see that the virtue of loyalty is highly related to this virtue of dignity in the mind of this community of butlers. The idea, I think, here is that if you're going to have confidence in the, fundal, the fundamental meaning of this work as a butler and taking care of the noble class's dirty laundry, you really need to trust in the goodness of the nobility. And you need to defend it like Stephen's father did when he kicks the nobleman out of the car. Because in a real way, a butler's own meaning and sense of dignity is dependent on the good name of their employer. So to introduce this idea of character, what we are talking about is the collection of specific interdependent virtues a person has and how they manifest when a person occupies certain roles in life, or you might say certain roles in a narrative. So when we talk about a person being a good character or a bad character, we are talking about how a, a person's individual virtues like loyalty and dignity and vices like intemperance or cowardice interact with the roles, for example, a butler, that they play in life. So you might play the role of a butler, a father, a sister, a manager, the list goes on, but you as a person individuate that role by your specific virtues and vices so that you have a character that is developed, you see? So, I think these stories show that beneath the question of what makes a great butler, there is a tension or question at the heart of the book, which is, what makes a great human being, and how does that relate to the roles available to us to inhabit? Because what happens throughout the novel is that we observe Mr. Stevens performing this role of the butler with absolute virtue and excellence. Anyone who reads this book is going to agree with that. He is a top-line butler. He is incredible at the role in which he has been cast. But at the same time, as Mr. Stevens reflects on his life, the reader becomes aware of the way that his performing that role with such excellence has created apparent deficiencies in his human experience. Now, of course, Mr. Stevens doesn't view it that way, but the reader has this vantage point where, you know, the reader certainly does view it as a deficiency. So to give you an idea of what I mean here, recall I said that Mr. Stevens is going on this trip to meet a lady named Miss Kenton, who he previously worked with. Well, as he's traveling and reflecting we start to realize that despite his awkward and stiff demeanor, Mr. Stevens is really hungry for personal connection with people. But as he is traveling to see Mrs. Kenton and thinking about his past experiences with her, 
the reader is very aware that this Miss Kenton was very much in love with Mr. Stevens, and that his single-minded devotion to serving Lord Darlington made him blind to the opportunity of a romantic relationship with her. And it's not just romantic relationships that Mr. Stevens misses out on either. There is this gut-wrenching episode in the book where Lord Darlington is having some foreign dignitaries in his home for dinner to discuss various events leading up to the Second World War. And during this dinner, Mr. Stevens' father becomes deathly ill. It becomes apparent that his father is, in fact, on his deathbed. And what Stevens thinks during this whole episode is that his father would want him to be serving these foreign dignitaries with excellence and the devotion befitting a good butler. But what the reader realizes and witnesses is that really... Mr. Stevens' father most wants to be with his son during his final moments. It's it's just gut-wrenching, and there's many more scenes like this where the reader sees all of these missed opportunities for Mr. Stevens to develop relationships. And what really punches you in the gut is that Mr. Stevens is completely able to identify his own feelings of sadness and emptiness in his life, But because of the way his excellence as a butler has shaped him, he has real trouble making the connection in his mind between these missed opportunities and his sense of sadness. Now, the real major plot point and the big twist in the plot has to do with the fact that Lord Darlington, as I've already said, was involved in foreign affairs. And the first hint we get of how significant this is happens about halfway through the novel when Mr. Stevens has a flashback to a moment when Lord Darlington, before World War II, asks Mr. Stevens to dismiss a Jewish member of the house staff. At the time, Mr. Stevens feels very uncomfortable with this and even feels a great deal of regret as he thinks about it later in life. But he rationalizes it to himself at the time because Lord Darlington ends up being very apologetic about it and saying, hey, you know, Mr. Stevens, I did not want to do that, but there were various forces at play that kind of made it necessary for me to do that for the sake of stability and keeping the household in order. Now, it's interesting that what sets off Mr. Stevens' memories about that specific incident is that he stops in a rural town, and he gets to drinking with the town people who are talking about politics and the changing social order. And one of these town people is a pretty outspoken liberal type in that old sense of the word, meaning that he's uh, pro-democracy and equal opportunity for people. Um, And this is a guy who thinks that the common man is capable of self-government and things like that. And hearing this kind of perspective is a real challenge to Mr. Stevens, because as a butler, the nobles are frequently degrading his intelligence. And beyond that, it's also the case that Stevens really believes that Lord Darlington has a kind of higher wisdom associated with his social role. He just, he has this implicit trust in the wisdom of Lord Darlington. And 
that, of course, is part of what allows him to have a clear conscience about the dismissal of that Jewish housekeeper. You know, Lord Darlington is smarter and wiser and knows something that I don't, right? But the story crescendos when we find out towards the end of the book that Lord Darlington, even though he was not necessarily anti-Semitic himself, did have some very seedy relationships with the Nazi party, and he was working to broker a deal between Britain and the Nazi party. Um, and in, in Lord Darlington's view, this was for the sake of stability, but nevertheless, he was working with the Nazis who, of course, we know um, where their atrocity ends. So in the closing chapters of the book, this realization becomes the primary lens through which Stevens is trying to evaluate whether it was worthwhile to forego relationships in his life and you know whether it was worth it spending his life trying to be a great butler. And the book ends on kind of an ambiguous note in a scene where Mr. Stevens uh, is, you know, sitting on the shoreline watching the sunset, the remains of the day, if you will. And he decides that he's going to start a new life and try to be a more relational and warm person. But the ambiguity comes because we as the reader aren't really sure how successful he will be because we've seen from his past all of that self-deception he's he's uh, committed upon himself and all these ways he's had of justifying uh, maybe unsavory behaviors from Lord Darlington. So it will drive some readers nuts, but the book, I would say, really does just end very open-endedly. We don't know what the future has in store for Mr. Stevens as we close the book. Now, typically I don't do novels on this show, so I thought what I might do before I move on is kind of give you a feel of how I approach novels. Part of the reason I don't do novels like this a lot on the show has to do with the fact that I read more nonfiction and am primarily interested in books with uh, application, let's say, to the perplexities and problems of real life. And it certainly isn't the case that novels lack insights about real life. Uh, I think it's actually quite the opposite. They have a tremendous amount of insight. The, the problem, for me at least, is that those insights are always embedded in a narrative, right? Um, and those insights aren't always um, apparent just from the form of the plot. But, you know, you kind of glean those insights from a kind of visceral emotional reaction you have produced uh, by, you know, maybe familiarities you feel from certain events or characters in the book. And this kind of intuitive aspect of how readers glean uh, real-life insights from fiction produces a whole new level of ambiguity when you go to discuss or debate the meaning um, of a novel or an application to real life, as I, you know, tried to do on this podcast. Now, what's cool is I was actually able to lead a book discussion about this very novel, and it was amazing for me to see people who had all read the exact same words and the same plot points, but there was this great variety, excuse me, of opinion about what these events and characters actually meant. 
and I think this is a testament to a well-written novel, exactly to the extent that while you're reading the novel, the author's intent temporarily dissolves into the background because the characters and the events, to use a phrase I'm sure you'll be familiar with, kind of take on a life of their own, right? And I think that this feature of great novels has to do with the degree to which an author is always being attentive to their own surroundings in life and kind of accurately relaying those details through the world of the novel they are writing. Now, I'm not saying that the author's intent should be invisible in a great piece of literature. I'm not saying that at all. Only that I I think a book ought to be sufficiently reflective of life's complexity so that you almost need to talk to other people about it and seek other people's opinions about a book in order to be able to get all the different angles on the events and characters, to find your blind spots, and together kind of unearth the the solid meaning behind the text. Because yes, I believe in solid meanings behind text for the most part. Now, I loved this book. Loved it. But there came a few points in the second half of the book where I think Ishiguru's voice and opinions very clearly broke into and interrupted the kind of world he constructed in the book. Um, There were a few statements towards the end of the book that were so uncharacteristic of of the life his characters had taken on that you kind of stop while you're reading and become aware that, okay, well, there's Ishiguro trying to make his point in the book, right? And again, I couldn't write this book or any book. It's easy to be a critic, but you know, that's what we're doing here. So the negative word that a critic might use to describe getting that feeling from the author is didacticism, being didactic. And to be didactic is to kind of lead the reader to kind of grab their hand and lead them to conclusions as if they couldn't conclude things for themselves. It's a kind of condescension to the reader. And um, just to be clear, this does not ruin a book for me at all, and it doesn't mean a book's not great. Um, One of my favorite novelists is Fyodor Dostoevsky, who is considered to be the greatest novelist of all time by many critics. And... uh, People agree that he frequently has these moments where his uh, incredible characters are kind of interrupted by his authorial voice kind of interrupting and trying to make some moral point. Now, back to the book here. When I led that book discussion, I think this issue of didacticism emerged over disagreements um, that the book discussion participants had over the ending of the book. Because a few of my fellow readers felt that there was certain evidence in the text that suggested Mr. Stevens is going to go on to live a life of continued delusion and self-deception, a very kind of depressing ending to the book. I'll read you one of the excerpts that we talked about in that book group um, that that was kind of used to substantiate this claim, and it's a It's a quote from the last scene where Stevens is sitting by the water, watching the sunset, reflecting on his past and future. And he says this, quote, The hard reality is surely that for the likes of you and I, 
there is little choice other than to leave our fate ultimately in the hands of those great gentlemen at the hub of this world who employ our services. What is the point in worrying oneself too much about what one could or could not have done to control the course one's life took? Surely it is enough that the likes of you and I at least try to make our small contribution count for something true and worthy. And if some of us are prepared to sacrifice much in life in order to pursue such aspirations, surely that is in itself, whatever the outcome, cause for pride and contentment. End quote. So uh, my friends in the reading group read that and, you know, say this is self-delusion and self-deception about his life, right? He's deluding himself. And I want to be fair here and say that I, I think that is absolutely what Ishiguru intended, right? I think that this kind of has that feeling of an authorial intrusion that I don't think is true to the life the characters took on themselves. And what I think happens is that Ishiguru interrupts the ambiguity of the book's ending that I think given all that's come before it in the book would otherwise give the reader cause for hope even in light of Mr. Stevens' stubbornness uh, throughout his life and his failures throughout his life. I I think that the book suggests a hopeful outlook. So I want to argue that if we ignore some of that didactic tone from Ishiguro, we can use these concepts of virtue and character we've been talking about to view this book as a very classic form of the Greek tragedy. Now, in Greek tragedy, you are always dealing with these dual human problems of what uh, people today might call determinism on the one hand and personal responsibility on the other. In Greek tragedy, we would call these, you know, two two features of life, fate and virtue. Um, You know, how do we deal with life seeming to be determined for us and still claim responsibility for our actions and call our life our own, even when it seemed we didn't have much control over it. So you have many of the characters in this book talking about the great men of history being at the steering wheel. And as the reader, we know that most of the characters have no idea what is going on behind the scenes with great men like Lord Darlington and his Nazi friends. And I want to emphasize that point strongly, that it is very, very clear in the book that the characters don't know anything about the wrongdoing, even if, you know, there's a few hints that the reader can recognize. And I think what Ishiguru does when he gets didactic is kind of act as if Stevens is being stupid and self-deceiving when he looks back with, with grace on his actions and, you know, and his, at his attempts at being a great butler. You know, it, it, the tone that Ishiguru takes suggests that he kind of looks down on the character of Mr. Stevens for looking back on his life and saying, hey... I did a good job even if, you know, these events produced a a horrific event like the Holocaust. Ishiguro has a certain kind of moral indignation against his own character and wants Mr. Stevens to be aware of the way he has been played by the system. He wants Stevens to have a political consciousness that can fight against this very clear injustice in the system. 
And it could be, to be fair, that Ishiguru is doing this consciously, like that he's trying to poke holes maybe in the kind of resignation that you find in a traditional Greek tragedy. Um, he may be trying to privilege uh, a kind of political defiance of fate. Certainly there are overtly political moments in the book that could be used to argue for that reading. But given the very clear centrality of virtue throughout the book, I think what's happened here is that Ishiguru's characters, in the very best way, again, have gotten away from him and have lives of their own that even his own authorial intrusions into the text can't control. Without Ishiguru's guidance, what the reader is left with is a very traditional and universal question, which is, can we claim responsibility for our lives and our own virtues and vices when we don't know the significance of our actions or the outcomes of them? And this is the great question of traditional Greek tragedy and the, the Western tradition as a whole. You've probably heard the story of King Oedipus. This is a very ancient uh, play by Sophocles. And this was the ancient Greek king who accidentally has sex with his mother, which sets off just a chain of awful events. And that story and many more Greek tragedies are, are simply pointing out that our best efforts, our best virtues, despite how desperately we desire the best for other people, still often result in failure and may even result in evil. And that raises the dual questions of whether we can claim responsibility and beyond that, whether there can be any hope whatsoever in a world where our best virtues and efforts can still fail. So, the uh, theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas, who I had the privilege to interview a few episodes ago, frequently talks about how the right narrative or storied understanding of character gives us the ability to, um, this is his phrase, not mine, it, having that right narrative understanding of character allows us to transform fate into destiny. To put it another way, there is a kind of paradoxical way in which you can somehow claim responsibility for your fate. And this is largely done, I think, by, uh, for lack of a better way of explaining it, living backwards in life and being able to recognize and situate yourself within an ongoing narrative or story. And I won't go into detail here, um, but Howard Wass would say that this is what traditions at their best can help us do. Remember we said um, that uh, virtues are narrative dependent, which means they're community dependent. And that's what Howard Wass would say a, a, like a religious tradition is meant to do. These traditions give us the vision to recognize and see in the world a kind of story that we can fit into. The uh, ancient Stoic philosopher Epictetus kind of echoes this way of thinking when he says that you should view yourself as having been cast by the maker of the universe. And this is, uh, for the Stoics, just nature. But being, viewing yourself being cast into a specific role in life, and that what you're to do is to play that role in the play 
with virtue and excellence. So that idea of roles is coming back here. And the idea here, like to be very explicit, it is not that you are to resign yourself to any lot in life. Epictetus was a slave who was brutally beaten by his master. So he's clearly not saying, oh, it's just okay to be a slave. What he's saying is is you need to learn to realize what is within your control and what lies outside of it. And the only way you can do that is by looking back at your past actions and their consequences. And this is how you're able to identify your story, which is what is necessary before you can recognize and evaluate your own character. And as I said earlier, that this character you're trying to recognize is constituted by a unique set of situations and failures and successes in your life. So this, for me, is why Mr. Stevens makes such a memorable character. At the beginning, he has a very narrow self-understanding, but he occupies the role he knows to the best of his ability. And it is tragically the truth, a Greek tragedy, it is tragically the truth that by virtue of his excellent, because he is excellent, he ends up being caught in something big and terrible and horrific. But it is only by undergoing that horrific, tragic process and being able to look back on it that he could finally recognize his story and his own character and to claim those actions as his own, allowing him, with the remains of the day, to transform his fate into destiny. So this has been The Remains of the Day by Ishiguru, Kazuo Ishiguru. Um, I hope it inspires you to go pick it up. It is it is a great book. Um, I know people have a lot of different opinions on this book, which is why you should read it, because you're going to have a unique take, too. Um, so thanks for tuning in, guys. Till next time. <laughs>